For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So, Father, we ask you right now to feed us with that bread of life. Feed us with your word, um, your word who is Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal word. And we ask that you would do this through this time of studying your holy word, your holy scriptures. Um, so accomplish it, your purposes in our midst and in our hearts and in our lives during this hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Any questions from last week? Things or comments or things that you just have been thinking about that you can't get out of your mind. Last week we talked about, um, we looked at verses 25 through 36, um, where Jesus is still down in Jerusalem. Remember, he went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, which was sometimes called the greatest of the Jewish feasts. And there would be huge um, a pilgrimage of all the Jews from all around the diaspora which is all around the Mediterranean basin. All of those Jews who did not live in their homeland of Palestine would travel on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Um, so we know that Jesus comes down, not with his brothers, but he goes in private. Um, and he starts to teach. And we find that there is some confusion about Jesus' origin and his identity. And in the midst of that confusion, there's also some division. Um, and some people are trying to arrest Jesus. The leaders, the Jewish leaders, are trying to arrest Jesus. Um, but other people are beginning to believe in him. So there's this dichotomy of response to Jesus. Any thoughts about that? Um, is this the same thing as Purim? What is Purim? Purim, oh, ooh, you don't know, Charlotte. No, 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 you're testing my knowledge. It's good. Purim is a different feast. Purim is the feast, um, I believe. Esther, yep. It's, as, it's the priest that's, it's the feast that celebrates what happens when, when God saved uh, the Israelites through Esther's interaction. So that one, that's a later feast that's instituted later. Feast of the Tabernacles is called for in the Pentateuch, and it, it, um, it was specific. It was also a harvest feast. But Purim's different. Purim is not as big a feast, mm -hmm. if I recall. The biggest feasts for them are um, Passover, Pentecost and um, Tabernacles. Some some of the commentators I've found are arguing that Tabernacles is the biggest one. It's kind of it hard to know. It sounds like Thanksgiving to me. <laughs> I know, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It is a little bit like Thanksgiving. It's a harvest feast. They had two harvest feasts, though. I think one was the first fruits, um, and then the other was at the end of the harvest. So the first one was saying, look, this is the first of everything, because remember, giving to God the first of everything is very important. Um, and then, uh, you know, that skimming off the top, the cream goes to God from the milk, right? And then, um, and then in some ways, by giving that first fruit, you're asking, continue to increase the harvest. <laughs> Give us a great harvest at the end. And then there would be a feast at the end of the harvest. <clears throat> but yes, it is a feast of thanksgiving. And thanksgiving for um, what God has done in the past and in hopeful expectation for what God will continue to do in the present and the future. And we'll look at that, especially with water today. Any other questions or comments about 
Jerusalem, the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus' teaching from last week, the division and response to him. Okay. Well, um, I started to talk about the context. I started to go into my outline, and I'm just going to do that very briefly because we'll have a lot to talk about with what Jesus is actually saying in this passage. But in chapter 7, it's um, I don't know if you got a chance to read the passage for today, but the passage for today, oddly enough, there's a lot of repetition. Did you notice that if you got a chance to read it? We have these first three verses, um, verses 37 through 39. And I'm actually going to deal with those last. I'm going to deal with those next. First, I'm looking at verses 40 through 52. You might say, Deborah, that's backwards. But the reason for that is that 40 through 52 continue these themes that we've been noticing all throughout the chapter, uh, this seventh chapter. And some of these themes include um, these things that I've put on your, on your outline in the very first part about the context. Because one of the things that we're seeing is that um, this whole chapter is building towards this climactic teaching of Jesus in verses 37 through 39. And then you see sort of this, you know, this bold proclamation. He's crying out in 37. It says that he cries out. And this, if you were to look at the whole chapter, this is the first time where he is teaching in Jerusalem at this particular feast, at this visit. This is the first time that John records him teaching on his, on his own, just putting something out there instead of responding to people's reaction to him. Instead of talking about his origin and his authority and his teaching, instead of defending his healing on the Sabbath, those are all responses to other people's reactions to him. He's responding and fielding their concerns or challenging their concerns. When we get to verses 37 through 39, Jesus is just boldly putting out there this big statement. This is a standalone statement. And the way that John writes is that this, whole chapter, essentially, it builds, you know, in a plot line for a movie or a book, you'll see that um, the tension or the conflict will build to a climactic point, and then it's resolved, and then there's some tying up of loose ends that's called the denouement, if you look at a plot line in a book. Do you remember that from English class, anybody? Well, this, we're looking at chapter 7, and there, there is conflict between, um, between the religious leaders and between Jesus. There is some bit of an argument, some bit of a defense, some bit of a call and response. And then this um, standalone statement by Jesus is really at the pinnacle of this chapter. This is the most important thing to come away from this chapter with. And when you come away from it, you will either respond in one way or another, which we've been seeing these two different responses to Jesus all along throughout this chapter. And we'll continue to see it in verses 40 through 52, which is why I want to address those first. Because we see the response, what are the responses to Jesus that we've already seen and that continue again in verses 40 through 52? Any thoughts about that? We can start dancing too to music if you want. We can. I know, I think it must be Zumba, but I know they're lifting weights, so... It's hard to do Zumba and lift weights. Um, any thoughts about the responses to Jesus? What do we see? They wanted an. You're right. They want an earthly kingdom. They see 
the expectation in the first century Jewish mindset was that the Messiah would set up a political kingdom, that the Messiah would overthrow all foreign powers. So no longer would Rome be um, dominant over the people of Israel. They were hoping for that kingdom that had previously existed under David and for a short time under his descendants, that united kingdom where um, they were kind of this, for a very brief blip in time, they were this, um, they were contending with the other world powers in the Middle East. They were strong, they were wealthy, they were prosperous, they were victorious in battle for a very brief moment. And so they're looking back to that golden age with expectation that there would be a future golden age that would be brought about through the Messiah. And yet that's the mistake is they don't see that it goes further and deeper, deeper into the heart of um, the individual, but also broader out into the world of all creation, not the, so that the promises of restoration and the blessings that will come about through the Messiah are actually for the entire world, for all nations, and not just for the people of Israel. So you're right, there is that, they're expecting, they're hoping for a worldly Messiah, a political Messiah. Um, but specifically in these pa this passage from John, we see that there's this question about, um, well, first of all, there's this question about Jesus' origin. Where is he from? Remember, if we went back to um, if we went back to the passage from last week um, in verse 26, they're asking, they say, maybe this is the Messiah because the authorities are not arresting him and he's speaking openly. Is it possible that they know that he is the Messiah, the Christ? Remember that Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one, the anointed one. The kings were always anointed in Israel. Remember um, Samuel anointing David, anointing Saul before him, and then anointing David. Messiah is for anointed one. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? That's in verse 26. And then their response to it, this, it's this very, um, the crowd is waffling. They don't know what to make about Jesus. But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. There's this sense, they know where he comes from, and then they have this expectation that the Messiah will come from some kind of mysterious place, which is so interesting because we, in our knowledge from the other Gospels and from the beginning of John, we know that Jesus has a mysterious origin. Remember the angel visiting Mary. Um, even John, though he doesn't talk about the Annunciation, he does talk about Jesus, the preexistent eternal word, who existed in um, before his incarnation as Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the eternal word. He is God himself. And John is very, very clearly saying that from the beginning. So when he has the, um, the crowd sort of responding and saying, well, no one will know where he comes from, and we know where this guy comes from, he's having us who are watching it, we're listening, saying, oh, but you're wrong. He, he, you don't know where he comes from. You think he might come from Galilee, but he doesn't. And then later on it says, um, in our passage for today, remember verses 40 through 42, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet, and others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and, uh, and from, comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Isn't it funny that previously they said, well, we're not going to know where the Messiah comes from. And now, whether it's the same group of people or a different group of people, they're saying, um, well, we know, we know that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. 
They're going off this prophecy from Micah. Remember that prophecy that we often have in our lessons of, and carol service before Christmas um, that does say that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem as the offspring of David. And so again, we can sort of smile and say, oh, but he was born in Bethlehem. We know that he is not from Galilee. Yes, he grew up in Galilee, but he's not from Galilee. And he's not really from Bethlehem either because his origin is from God. So we have this privileged information and it actually distances us from the crowd as they're speculating about his origin. And, um, and they're very chimerical. They keep changing their minds. But essentially, at the basis of that is this refusal to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. It's a resistance, an inner resistance to believing that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ. So we see this division. Um, and it, that's what it says in verse 43. There was a division among the, the people over them. Some, some do believe and we'll see that, some do believe, but others don't know what to think, and they want to arrest him. But because his time has not come, remember that kairos word that we talked about a few weeks ago, Jesus' time has not come, and the time, or the hour in the Gospel of John is always the hour of Jesus' death. It is not time yet for Jesus to die in God's plan, and so it's not going to happen. No one laid hands on him. Then what we see in verses 45 through 52 is this in, these interesting interactions between the officers, remember, who have been sent out from the chief priests and the Pharisees to arrest Jesus. And they come back empty-handed. And the Pharisees say to them, why didn't you bring him? And the officers have been stunned by Jesus' authority. Remember, we were talking earlier about his authority, that he speaks as one who has an authority um, that comes directly from God, rather than pointing back and saying, well, you should listen to me because I studied with so-and-so who studied with so-and-so who studied with so-and-so. Remember, that chain of, of authority was how the rabbis um, authenticated their teaching. Well, I'm basing this on this. Think about it when we write papers today. If, you, if you've ever written a research pa paper, you have to cite your sources. When you cite your sources, it authenticates your claim. You make a statement, and then you say, well, so-and-so also says this, and he proves it through this way. So you don't have to prove everything yourself. Well, Jesus is not speaking this way. He's not writing a thesis paper. He is just putting it out there. And his teaching comes directly from God himself. Um, and then the Pharisees start mocking the officers. Um, have you also been deceived? Um, and they mock them and, and say, there's no way that this is the Christ because um, none of the authorities have believed in him. You need to listen to us and not to the crowd. Um, and do you see this portrait of discipleship that, um, that we see coming up? Do you remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus is one of the Pharisees. He's a part of this ruling class, this group of leaders in Israel. And um, remember that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, he came to Jesus. And remember, I was like, and a lot of people talk about chapter 3 as being Nick at night. Remember Nicodemus? <laughs> Nicodemus, it's so cute and so catchy and it helps you remember. He comes to Jesus. He's curious about Jesus. He wants to ask him some questions and hear from him. But he doesn't come during the day, does he? He, he doesn't come during the day when everybody could see him. He comes at night. He's kind of sneaking in to see Jesus, and it specifically says because he's afraid. He's afraid that he'll be identified as one of the followers of Jesus. He's afraid that, um, he's afraid that he'll be 
he'll be mocked or or um, disowned from his group, from his um, from the with, by the other Pharisees. Well, here we see um, his fear has changed a little bit. He's a little less fearful because here he is sticking up for Jesus in the midst of his peers and colleagues. He's boldly countering his colleagues' claim about Jesus. He's challenging them to look at the law and to really give Jesus a fair trial before judging him, before concluding that he is a false prophet, which is their conclusion. But he's saying, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And do you see their response? What is their response? It's mocking and dismissive. He suffers a little bit here. He suffers a little bit um, for the sake of Jesus. He's proclaiming, he's standing up for Jesus, and here he receives some mockery in return. They say, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They're mocking him and dismissing him. Well, does this deter him? Does anybody remember where else we'll see Nicodemus in the Gospel of John? This is a big Sunday school question because it's later on when Jesus has died. And I I think I put it on your sheet. In in chapter 19, verse 39, we see that Nicodemus is one who has come out of the woodwork. Jesus' own disciples have fled and scattered. But there Nicodemus is at his burial. And he is helping to provide the king's ransom of myrrh and aloes and spices to anoint Jesus' body for burial, giving him the burial of a king, a costly, expensive burial. And Nicodemus is um, very boldly taking a a step out in faith to anoint Jesus' body and to bury him. That is the act of a disciple who's not afraid to be associated with Jesus, even if he didn't follow Jesus. I like to think that um, through encounter with Jesus, he was emboldened. He really did end up believing in Jesus, even though he was challenged by Jesus in chapter 3. We see him gradually taking these risks, risking his reputation and perhaps even risking his life because the reason why the disciples scatter when Jesus is arrested is out of fear that they too will be arrested and crucified with Jesus. That's why they scatter. But here Nicodemus came out of the woodwork and was willing to be associated with Jesus by being a part of his burial. So I, I find that a hopeful, a hopeful thing. Even though he is initially resistant or ignorant of Jesus' teaching, the Holy Spirit seems to work on his heart over time. So that's an encouragement for each one of us as we're praying for people in our lives who just don't seem to get it, the way Nicodemus doesn't seem to get it in chapter 3, that through, um, through prayer, prayer for that person and continual exposure to Jesus through you, through the church, through whatever, that there is hope that God will transform that person's heart and cause them to lead a life then of um, risk-taking faith in Jesus. Any thoughts about that? Is it just me or is it extra loud today? It is. It is. I should have gone over there today and just said, hey, guys, see That's the room. They're not supposed to make the noise. Oh, really? Well, you want to go in? It's going to be quiet. No, no. It's, um, I had asked them a couple weeks ago, and, and they responded favorably. But we'll, we'll just, yeah. We'll just, 
We'll just keep going on. Is it too distracting for you? It is distracting. It is distracting. You can... <laughs> Okay, we'll just keep we'll just keep on keeping on. If you can focus, if you need to take a little dance break, I understand. We'll just get back to. Oh, Bitsy! Oh, Bitsy! How bold you are! Thank you, Bitsy, our hero. Oh well, uh, let's just pray for Bitsy right now, actually. So, Lord God, we thank you for her courage, and we thank you for her willingness to just um, go over there. And so we ask just that you would give her grace and a winsome approach that um, her own gentleness in you, her gentle spirit, which is a, a product of her faith in you and your work in her life. We ask, Lord, that you would just use that to work powerfully upon these men over here, that they would see that and... Um, and respect that and respect you as a result and um, allow us to continue our Bible study without interruption. So we ask all of this in the strong name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, so, I know, we're grateful for that. I think you're right, Sheila. So it might, it might work for us to do this every week. I know, I don't think they think about it. When you're in the zone, right? When you're working out in the zone, you're in the zone. Well, good. Well, we'll have to. We'll have to. Thank you, Bitsy. I was the oldest person over here, and it was, you know, he cut it down. I know he did turn it down, but. Thank you, Bitsy. A brave soul. We were just talking about uh, Nicodemus's bravery, and we have a Nicodemus <laughs> right in our midst. Um, <laughs> there wasn't anybody in there. Just the music. Well, we'll we'll give thanks for that. So we've been looking at the context for this teaching of Jesus. We've been looking at this context, and now we're looking at the actual content of what Jesus says. This is where, um, this is just incredible. I love this. Jesus, I'm just going to read these three verses. On the last day of the feast, the great day, and these are verses 37 through 39, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Wow, powerful words, right? And remember that this is a standalone teaching. It's not really responding to anything. But it is to be placed within the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, we were talking about the Feast of Tabernacles being a way for the people of Israel to remember God's past faithfulness when they wandered in the desert. And remember, um, in the desert, um, they, um, they were thirsty and they cried out to God. And God told Moses to go to a rock and to strike the rock with his staff. And when he did that, what happened? Water came out from a dry stone. A spring of water came out, and they were no longer thirsty in the desert. And um, I gave you the, the passage from Exodus 17. It talks about that event when, Jesus, when Moses struck the rock. Um, and then uh, on, in Isaiah 48:21, it talks about the same event and says, They, the Israelites, did not thirst 
when God led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. Well, to commemorate this event, the priests, the high priests in in Jerusalem during this feast, on each, some people say it was on each day of the feast, some people say it was on the last day of the feast. Well, during the feast, we know, we were pretty sure that the priests would go to the Pool of Siloam, which we'll see in chapter 9, this pool in Jerusalem, and um, take a golden ewer and fill it with water from the pool. And then he would carry it in a solemn procession to the altar in the temple, where then it was poured out on the ground as a reminder, as a thanksgiving for the water poured out in the desert, and also as a petition that the Lord would send rain to make the harvest grow. Even as they were giving thanks for those first fruits, that the Lord would send rain for the rest of the harvest. Um, So water played a very important part in the Feast of Tabernacles, that miraculous provision of water. And water itself is something that is used throughout the prophets in the Old Testament that continually use the image of water as an image of this future renewal that's, prophet, that's promised in, um, in and through this future date. As the prophets were looking to the future, they said no longer would, the, would Israel be a dry and dusty land. There would one day be water in abundance and that in that um, abundance, there would also be, what does water bring when it comes agriculturally to a land? You think of life. What? Life. Yeah, life. Green things. I just think of our summers. And I haven't experienced a summer in Birmingham, but every summer in anywhere else that I've been, you can always tell who, you can tell who waters their lawn, can't you? They water their lawn. They water their lawn. They don't water their lawn. It's dry, crackly, brown. Um, so that water brings that green growing life. And also from the green growing life comes fruit and food for hungry people. The trees bear fruit and the grain grows. So water really is this source of life. And so that's the reason for it being used in all these images of water. Um, I, let's just take a moment. And if we could have three volunteers um, to just turn in their Bible to Isaiah 12:3. Isaiah 44.3 and Isaiah 58.11. Let's just see. How about this side of the room? Take Isaiah 12.3. This middle of the room, if you're looking, go for Isaiah 44.3. And for this part of the room, go for Isaiah 58.11. Isaiah 12 over here. And I think you have the, the, you're going to be 44 and you're going to be 58 over here. Um, anyone over here want to re- read Isaiah twelve three? If you've reached it, therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Is there any more to that verse? That's it. That's all that. Just three, right? Yeah, just three. That's right. That verse, that it, it, some commentators have said that that verse in specific was used. They might have used that verse in association with this action of the priest bringing the ewer of water that as he was carrying this water over to the altar to pour it out on the ground, it was, um, they were saying this verse that um, water was being drawn from the wells of salvation. Um, we sing that every Sunday. Yeah. We do. Sometimes it's one of the 
Yeah. Isn't it great? It's a wonderful line. Hey, do you, anyone here have 44? Do you want to read it? 44. Um, Isaiah 44, verse 3. Looks like you have it, Sarah. Do you want to go for it? full water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Ooh. Ooh, there we get water and the Holy Spirit tied together, right? There we have this precedent of water being specifically associated with the Holy Spirit and this promise that God would pour out water on thirsty ground, that his people are like this thirsty desert ground. And then when God's Spirit is poured out upon his people, um, then, then, then there would be life in them and fruitfulness in them. And that also... Um, We'll talk some more about the Holy Spirit because that's certainly in what Jesus is saying here. Thank you. Anyone for Isaiah 58? And you look ready. God, you continually and satisfy your desire with good things and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. You will be, this is a promise, for a future time when God would make his people like a watered spring, fruitful, strong. Life, uh, filled with life. Any thoughts or ideas about those passages? Do you see how they relate to, um, to our, the verses 37 through 39? Well, there's one more, too, that I put down on your sheet, and that's Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 11. And this is also an image of that future salvation. Remember, in the Feast of Tabernacles, they're remembering the history of God's salvation, God saving them in the desert by sending water from the rock. And now they're looking towards the future throughout the prophetic literature. And we see this. Ezekiel specifically has a vision of a future date when, and at this vision at the end of his whole book of prophecy, he sees the, he sees the new Jerusalem and the new temple. And this newly rebuilt temple has this miraculous flow of water that comes out from under the place where the presence of the Lord was, and it flows out through the east gate, and then it flows on and out to, um, to this eastern part. Remember, I always remember Andrew saying, if you get bored during a sermon, that, that sometimes you might find yourself looking at the map in your Bible. <laughs> He's so funny. Anyway, the, the, going out from Jerusalem, when you look at this, I like this map because you can see the green, you can see the dry ground, right? The dry, this dry valley in the desert that's east of Jerusalem. So this vision that Ezekiel has involves water coming directly from the temple where the presence of God was. This water goes out, and as it goes out, it increases in its depth and volume miraculously gets bigger and greater and it goes out into this dry and arid desert land and it transforms this dry arid desert into a paradise and not only is it a paradise but then it goes down to the Dead Sea do you remember about the Dead Sea anything what do you remember about the Dead Sea or that you might know about the Dead Sea it's very what's that very salty it's the saltiest body of water on earth and it's very below sea level and I always look for that lotion with the Dead Sea Minerals in it. Whenever I'm at the discount store, he knows it's fine because it's so expensive to buy otherwise, but it's so good for your skin. 
All those Dead Sea minerals are really good for your skin. There's a little cosmo like <laughs> cosmetic plug. <laughs> but they say that the Dead Sea, you know, it was this place full of these minerals because of the salt deposits, and it's very low. But nothing grew there because it was too salty and too dry. There wasn't enough fresh water. So in Ezekiel's vision, essentially what he sees is this water coming out from Jerusalem, from the temple in the presence of the Lord. And it goes into the desert, and it makes the desert a paradise. But then it also goes down to the Dead Sea, and it makes the Dead Sea from a salt place into a freshwater body. And that there are even fish growing in that freshwater body. It's no longer dead, is it? Now alive from this vision that he has of this um, eschatological. When I say eschatological, that means end times. This end, this future promise renewal of the land um, that also is encompassed with a renewal of God's people as well. So um, where there was death and nothing growing, there's now life and growing things. And even in the salty water, it's no longer too salty for life. And there, um, it's now a living sea instead of a dead sea. And he even talks about fish in the water. What's so interesting, too, is then he goes on to say, but it was still salty enough to be good because they used the salt to flavor their food. So they say, oh, those minerals were still there because we like the minerals. And God knows we like them and need them. So God is so specific in his provision of renewal, <laughs> um, which I love about Ezekiel's vision from Ezekiel 47. So there's this renewal that's prophesied, this future renewal. And one thing that we see throughout is this renewal is often described using water. Water on dry land, water um, transforming um, the environment, but then also water upon the heart of the believer. And the water is specifically likened in that one verse that we read from Isaiah 44, 3, to the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but one thing that Jesus talks about um, is living water. Did you notice that? Out of his heart will flow streams, uh, rivers of living water in verse 38. And Jesus has talked about living water before in the Gospel of John. Do you remember that? He talks about it in chapter 4, verse 14. I know we're on a Bible tour today. Um, whoever, well, he talks about it in 4.10. He talks about... Um, this water to the woman at the well in Samaria. He says, um, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus here is claiming to have living water. And we'll talk about what that living water is. He goes on to say in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water from this well here in Samaria will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is living water? What, do they, what does it mean in this context? And I just want to say that living water is actually a technical term. So we think of living water and we think of water that gives life. Right? We think of that water making the lawn green or water, as Ezekiel said, making the desert into a paradise that then will bear fruit that people can eat, um, bringing life and feeding us. Well, that's not the context. That's not essentially what they're talking about in um, the first century Jewish mindset when they're talking about living water. Living water was a, a technical term for water that moved um, so I don't know if you know the difference between water that moves and water that doesn't, but 
there's a place that I go to on Cape Cod every summer. And in this place, we'll go hiking. And there are some places where you want to swim and some places where you don't want to swim. You can swim in, there are a lot of options, actually. You can swim in the ocean on the Atlantic side. You can swim in the bay. You can swim in these little bays and here in the arm. Sarah knows. You can also swim in, swim in some of the glacial lakes that have been left behind um, during a certain geological area, era. So there are these nice freshwater lakes. But the one place where I don't want to swim when I go to Cape Cod is this little pond that we sometimes pass when we're hiking. This little pond is surrounded by all these trees, and you can tell that nobody really goes there very often. There's just a little bench that's usually overgrown, so you kind of have to fight your way to the bench, all for the purpose of seeing this pond. And by the end of the summer, when I'm there, very often in August, July or August, the pond is covered with a thick, thick green scum. And I just think, I'm not going swimming in that scummy pond. Um, and the reason why it gathers scientifically, it gathers all that scum, right? It's because it's this, it doesn't move. It doesn't move. It's this little Petri dish and little, you know, all sorts of scuzzy things start growing in it. The kind of things you don't want to swim with. Well, um, it's, it, there's no inlet or no outlet or not a big enough inlet, not a big enough outlet. It's just this pool that's standing there like a tidal pool, um, except much bigger and much uh, more long-standing than a tidal pool. So that is not living water. That's stagnant water. And I don't know about you, but um, when I, when do you prefer? Some people prefer baths to showers, but I, let's just say there's something about a bath that feels like you're stewing. <laughs> this might be too much information. Maybe I should pause the recording. But the the you know baths are nice if you're trying to relax. But it's not the best way to get clean. And, you know, the shower, your water's coming on and then off. You know, everything's getting washed away, washed down the drain, right? Right away. And there's that, um, it's coming from one source and it's going out through another source. It's that, there's that um, good um, shower and then the good drainage, which doesn't really happen with the bath. And that is right exactly what we're talking about when, when the first, in the first century they talked about living water. What they meant was moving water water that is moving through and carrying away with it any impurities. Um, just like the water was not moving through that pond and carrying away all the scuzz, you know, or it doesn't move through the bath, they're talking about water that moves through. And so um, they talked about this specifically with ritual cleansing for the Jews. When they were looking at ritual cleansing prior to um, after being unclean for any reason, you know, touching a dead body or whatever, they wanted to put, they want the best bath that you could have, the best washing, would be in a spring of water because the water would just carry away any impurities with it. And that's why the Jordan River, as scuzzy as it seems to us, because the Jordan River, it's not this clear blue water, it's brown, scuzzy water. Has anybody been to the Jordan River? Yeah. Is it brown and scuzzy and kind of shallow? Yeah, it's not the most exciting water to be, you know, but the fact that it's flowing meant that it was clean water in their minds. And um, so they would even, in the absence of a clean water bath in a stream where it would carry away any impurity, they had these baths that they would build that had uh, an inlet and an outlet to carry away the dirt with it. So when Jesus is talking about living water, he's talking about flowing water that cleanses. Um, he's talking about um, a spring that comes forth and just completely cleanses, washes away everything. Um, 
And so then, so this is part of the background also to his, his um, proclamation in, in John 7, verses 30, 37 through 39. When he talks about living waters, he's talking about that flowing water, that water that flows in and then out. Um, the, uh, one more background to what he's saying in verses 37 and 39. Are fr- um, and these are from, I'm going to let you look at these on your own, but I'll give you some... I give you some um, I give you some references to these invitations throughout the prophetic scriptures, throughout the Old Testament scriptures. One invitation comes actually from earlier in the chapter, from our little our little verses that we read every week from Isaiah 55. And I don't know if you remember that that, but that chapter begins with this invitation: Come, buy. Buy food without price. Come and drink from these waters. Come and drink. There's this invitation from God himself to the people of Israel to come and to find, um, to find good food and good water, good drink. He even talks about wine later on in God himself. And not to go for the food that doesn't satisfy or the drink that doesn't quench one's thirst. And that also is mirrored. We see that same invitation in these verses from Proverbs that I've given you. Those verses are um, verses where wisdom, who is sort of this, this facet of God himself, wisdom is there proclaiming and inviting people to come and drink. Come and drink from wisdom's wells. Come and drink from the very source of life itself, which is found in God. And don't be distracted by anything else that will um, deter you, any lesser thing. So you see wisdom making this invitation in Proverbs. So when Jesus makes a similar invitation, when he cries out in verse 37, it says he stood up, calling attention to himself. He cries out and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That is a pretty huge assertion. Let him come to me and drink. So the first assertion, he's making a divine claim there. Based on these claims and these invitations made in Isaiah and in Proverbs, they would have that as their mindset. So if Jesus stands up and says, no, come to me, he's saying that he himself, he's putting himself on an equal plane with God the Father. He is making a claim to divinity by saying that he is the source for this um, wisdom, for this drinking, for this life itself. Um, So he's making a divine claim. He's making a claim that in him this prophecy of renewal is fulfilled. Remember those prophecies that we went around and read from Ezekiel, from Isaiah 12, from Isaiah 44, Isaiah 58. He is saying that he himself is the, um, the fulfillment of those prophecies, those hopes for the renewal of the people of Israel, that there would be life instead of a dry, dusty desert, spiritual life instead of spiritual death. Um, and he is also making a claim that, um, that is corroborated by St. Paul. He is claiming to be the fulfillment of that rock in the desert. That fed, that, um, that fed the thirst of the Israelites, that slaked their thirst when they wandered in the desert. He is making a huge assertion. And through this assertion, again, I'll say it again, we see that Jesus Christ is the true rock. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.4, All drank, all the Israelites drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. 
that rock prefigures Jesus Christ himself, who is the rock um, from which living springs flow forth. And um, so just as Jesus is the source of living water, um, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He is the spring of water. Um, And out of this spring of water, what is one of the effects of this spring of water? Except that through faith in Jesus Christ, remember how that living water cleansed? Well, there was this sense in which um, the cleansing that was needed, the ritual cleansing that the Jews wanted was not just for um, cleanness to enter into the temple, but it was a sign of the cleansing from sin. That they needed to be cleansed, that any human being would need to be cleansed from sin before entering into the presence of a holy God. That was why they had all this ritual cleansing before entering into the temple for worship. Because they wanted to be cleansed from sin so that they could enter into God's presence. Well, Jesus here is claiming to be the ultimate flowing water. That ultimate cleansing from sin. Uh, Jeremiah 2.13 says, My people have forsaken me. This is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. My people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What a perfect description of sin. Turning away from the source of life itself, trying to find life in and of our own selves, when in fact we are broken vessels that cannot contain the water, even when we receive the water from God himself. Um, That sin is... um, a cracked cistern in us. We are vessels that are cracked. Um, my sister, when she was a senior in college, she's an art major. And her thesis, her whole thesis, well, first of all, she was very interested in pottery. And she had done all of these beautiful pot, pots. And in high school and in college, she had two or three pottery wheels, and she would spin the pots, and they would, she would spin great big pots and smaller pots. Um, And she also got into painting. That's when she was first really into oil painting. She was also doing um, huge iron sculptures. So she got into welding. Little old her would put on this big welding mask and go down with all these guys in the welding, in the metal shop at her college, Amherst College, and she'd go ahead and start welding. She made these nine-foot-tall, I think she made five nine-foot-tall sculptures, metal sculptures, that were in the shapes of pots. Um, one, my favorite one, is a pot that's spinning on the wheel, and she captures the motion of the spinning pot. Well, the title of her thesis is The Human, um, the human Body as a Vessel. And she was certainly grappling with this idea of um, every human being being like a vessel, like a pot. We certainly see that in Jeremiah's language about Um, God being the potter and us being these vessels made for his good pleasure and his good purposes. Um, We see it in Jeremiah here again saying that we are like these broken vessels, these vessels with a crack in it that don't necessarily hold water. And there was something about her thesis that has so affected me. She even did this um, this one painting of these gourds that were like human vessels. She was showing how gourds can hold water and uh, the humans, the, we as human beings essentially are vessels for the Holy Spirit, vessels for God's own presence, um, and yet we don't, we don't hold it. We don't, we're not, we're broken vessels. Um, 
And yet, through Jesus Christ, we continually receive that source of living water. We receive that cleansing power. And that cleansing power of the Holy Spirit comes about through his death. Doesn't John say this right here? That what Jesus is saying is that this living water is available to those who believe in Jesus, but it's available only through Jesus' death. Now, um, in verse 39, now this he, John, uh, Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Remember, Jesus being glorified means his death in John. Jesus had not yet died, and so the Holy Spirit was not yet available to believers in Jesus. And um, you see the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters in the beginning of creation, the Holy Spirit being used by God for specific purposes, being used to empower specific individuals for a specific calling. You see it with the, specifically with the kings, the anointing of the kings, anointing with the Holy Spirit. Um, you see it with priests, the anointing of the priests in the, in the Jewish temple and tabernacle. And you see it with the prophets, an anointing of the Spirit for this prophetic proclamation prophet, priest, and king. There's one more category in the Old Testament. I won't give you all the, I'm not giving you all the citations because I've given you too many citations. There's one more category, and that's with the artist, Bezalel, um, who's the artist for the tabernacle, who makes all of the um, tapestries, not quite knitting, but certainly sewing, making the tapestries, making all the fine metalwork for the tabernacle. It says specifically in the Pentateuch that he is empowered. The Holy Spirit comes upon him to allow him to accomplish this work. So we see that the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament empowers specific individuals for a task or a calling that is beyond their ability. It's this special empowering um, from God, this um, uh, renewed ability, this heightened ability that comes only from God himself. Um, and so, but it's given only to specific in individuals for specific purposes. And yet in the New Testament, what we see happening in, in, in and through Jesus is that the Holy Spirit is then offered to every single believer, no matter what our calling or our task, um, that we are, um, as we are in Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, we then, um, the Holy Spirit then becomes available to us. The Holy Spirit is then through faith in Jesus Christ, poured out upon us. And this is simultaneous to that cleansing from sin, um, which is why that water image is so powerful. And I, I think it was, I want to say it was, someone once said, and I think I knew who it was, but I'm not going to say their name just in case I'm wrong, that it's almost as though every time you see the blood, the power of the blood um, throughout Scripture being used to describe the cleansing power of Jesus' death on the cross, that his blood, we are washed clean in his blood from all sin. We are pardoned. God pardons our sin because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. So there's that sense in which we are washed in his blood. Well, every time it says blood in the New Testament, and it's talking about Jesus' blood, you could, you, could, you could say the Holy Spirit instead. You could interchange those two words and say, washed in the Holy Spirit, washed in the blood of Jesus. And the idea is the same, that it's through Jesus' death that the Holy Spirit, which has empowered him specifically for his ministry, that rests upon him at his baptism, that Holy Spirit is then offered to all believers in a much wider and broader way than it ever had been before because God is doing a new thing in and through Jesus Christ. We see that prophecy. I didn't give you the citation, but you see the prophecy in Joel chapter 2. 
And it again, then it happens in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes upon the early apostles at Pentecost and empowers them to begin to preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit empowers them also to do these things that they couldn't do, to do these things, to um, do this uh, ability, of, uh, to have the ability to remember all those words of Jesus and to understand what he was doing as they begin to proclaim the gospel. So that proclamation of the gospel comes about through the Holy Spirit, this empowering um, God's own spirit, resting upon believers in Jesus Christ, um, cleansing us from sin, and then empowering us to be God's light to the world. So you always see this, um, this light also associated with the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean then? Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are cleansed. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, it says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And he goes on to say in chapter 14, verse 8, On that day living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. There's this expectation that living water would come and once and for all cleanse people from sin. And that prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the rock, who is prefigured by that rock in the wilderness, who is the source of living water, who proclaims that in him, whoever drinks in him, whoever has faith in Jesus Christ, will never be thirsty again. That even though that broke, we are still broken cisterns, bit by bit, perhaps our cracks are lessening, being patched up through faith in Jesus Christ and through that ongoing walk with him, but that we still leak. Um, and yet, God in his mercy, as we continue to receive Jesus Christ poured out for us in his death, as we continue to receive um, everything that God has for us in Jesus Christ, we are then continually filled. We leak, but God is gracious and he fills us again. We're those broken cisterns, and yet as we recognize it and are honest about it, as we repent and turn to God, he is gracious. He has mercy upon us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness and all sin, and he delights to pour out his presence upon us. And so that's how believers then become um, uh, the ones in whom um, living waters flow out of our hearts. How beautiful is that? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And the, the rivers of living water, of course, that are the Holy Spirit flowing out of the heart of the believer, and yet they flow out only because the believer is tied in and unified with Jesus Christ through faith in him and in his death. He's the source of all living water. And so we're like those wells, those springs, just like it says in Isaiah 58, which we read, you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And I'll just leave you with one last image to see what that's like. Do we have the source of the living water in and of ourselves? No. Even though you could, some might extrapolate that from this passage. But I'd like to suggest that this image, which um, that has stuck with me for some reason, because I don't watch a lot of TV, but I'm sure you've all seen some kind of car commercial, like me, where there's this car, and on the hood of the car is a... Um, a pyramid of champagne glasses. Have you ever seen this luxury car commercial? Okay, I think I saw it once, and it was a long time ago. But this luxury car, it's on, and the whole point is that the engine is so smooth that it doesn't j jostle all of these crystal 
champagne glasses. And the champagne glasses, you know, they're out in this one layer. There's another layer on top of them. They're the wide ones, the old-fashioned ones, not these flutes, but the wide, old-fashioned um, champagne glasses that are resting one upon another. And, of course, as this commercial goes on, they start to pour champagne into the very top wine glass. Remember, in the very top champagne glass, then it flows out into the next one, then it trickles down, then it trickles down, then it trickles down. It becomes sort of like this fountain. Well, I sort of imagine that um, this, this process, this, um, the, the, what are the dynamics of this, where the believer has living waters. We have living waters flowing in and out of us, flowing out of us as we bless other people, as we pour out our lives sacrificially through other, um, for other people. And yet our source of strength, our source of living water is only in Jesus Christ, who has himself poured out his own life for us. So we're like those little champagne glasses at the very bottom of the pyramid. He's at the top, and the champagne is poured into him and out through him to us. And as we pour ourselves out, our source for that water, that living water, is only in and through him. Any ideas about my semi-blasphemous image there? Okay. But it's so, I love that, well, also it's champagne. Who doesn't love champagne? It's just that image of it flowing out. We're like these vessels just receiving from God through Jesus Christ. And as we receive and our cup is full, then we are, that's the only way we're able to give um, in and of ourselves. And, and we leak. So we keep needing to return to the source. Uh, so any questions about that before we pray? Okay. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you would spring up a well within our hearts. We ask that you would tie us in ever more deeply to the source of living water, that source of eternal life, which is your son, Jesus Christ. And it's through his death that we have this life. Um, in, in his death, we find life. And we find that life through the forgiveness of our sins. And we also find life and joy and abundance in that empowerment for the ministries and the different tasks and um, even just the relationships that you've given us, the little ways that we can show love to other people. And we're not very good at that. We're broken cisterns. And we recognize that. But we ask, Lord Jesus, that you um, would have mercy on us and that through your death you would cleanse us from all sin and all unrighteousness, and then that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to be those, source, those living waters, that um, to allow those living waters to flow through us so that we might be a blessing to those around us in your name and for your glory and for the benefit of those in our lives. So we ask all this um, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah. 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 Yeah.